Arrow Films is a leading independent entertainment distribution company established in 1991, operating in the UK, the Republic of Ireland, United States of America, and Canada. Arrow Films is dedicated to supporting upcoming and established filmmakers of dynamic new cinema and developing an inviolable slate of quality films that enjoy a lasting legacy across its award-winning branded labels, channels, and platforms. Arrow Films is also a leading restorer and theatrical distributor of classic and cult horror films, including landmark titles such as the 25th anniversary reissue of Cinema Paradiso, the 15th anniversary reissue of Donnie Darko, and the 30th anniversary reissue of Hellraiser. These lovingly restored films are brought back into cinemas nationwide with brand new look campaigns with wide-reaching distribution, including outdoor event status screenings at various cultural festivals and as one-off bookings in local repertory cinemas and film societies. Aerofilms is also widely considered to be the global market leader in the premium home entertainment market fueled by passionate and expert curation aligned with state-of-the-art in-house film restoration, resulting in highly sought-after bespoke Blu-ray editions of classic cult and horror films across its Aero Video and Aero Academy branded labels. Beloved by collectors, these ever-expanding brands continue to delight their growing international fan base with regular interactive live events, festival sponsorship, and retail stands presence. Our offering extends to truly limited edition box sets, as well as associated spin-off products, now including books and vinyl records. We are so happy to have Aero Video as one of our new sponsors. You can find them at www.aerofilms.com. While you're there, be sure to pick up some cool titles. For example, they have the brand new American Werewolf in London collection, which is beautiful. The complete Sartana collection. Hellraiser 1, 2, and 3. Toys are not for children. A new edition of Al Pacino's Cruising. And let's not forget a limited edition copy of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and a limited edition copy of RoboCop. There's so much more I can't even get into them all, but trust me when I say they're fantastic. And we couldn't be happier to have them. So once again, visit Aerofilms at www.aerofilms.com and check out all of their brands from Aero Video, Aero Academy, Aerofilms, and Aero TV. No, if I had my way, and I've I've made it no secret that I am a huge fan of the Super Mario Brothers movie. Um, if I had it my way, there would the, the they would make a spiritual sequel to to um, Super Mario Brothers the movie. And in my heart of hearts, I'd want it live action, but I know that's not going to happen. <laughs> where, where John Leguizamo would play um, Luigi again, and. Bob Hoskins, he's no longer with us, but even if he was, he wouldn't want to be in this piece of shit anyways. <laughs> he has said that that was the worst movie he ever d- did. And I was like, I've not l- I've watched everything that Bob Hoskins has done, but I feel like he's been in worse movies <laughs> than Super Mario Brothers. But I know he had a bad time making it. Um, in my idea, it would be a movie about um, Luigi is on his own. Mario has sadly passed away. Um, I'd have to figure out how to get him to the house, but I'm thinking it has to be something to do... Cause in, remember in Super Mario Brothers, there was that whole thing about Luigi being like, nothing's impossible. Yep. And Lu- in this version, Luigi would be talking to Daisy and be like, I know Mario's still out there. I don't know how, but I know he's trying to get a hold of me. 
Um, and he's like, and, Luigi, and Daisy's like, Mario's gone, Luigi. You have to just move on. And he's like, no, he's not gone. So he goes and like he gets this message to go to. Um, I imagine he's still doing the plumbing business, and he he gets a job to go to this big mansion. And while there, he keeps getting clues that like Mario must be here. But we also find out the place is haunted, and. I imagine, like, at one point, Luigi gets freaked out and everything. He doesn't know what to do, so he grabs the closest thing to him as, like, a vacuum cleaner or some <laughs> shit. And he's, like, like I just imagine, like, like John Leguizamo dressed up in, like, almost, like, makeshift armor, like, like lurking around the house thinking he's going to catch a ghost. And in my mind, he accidentally does catch a ghost with with a, uh, with a uh, the vacuum cleaner just on a complete fluke. But the scientist who hired Luigi, who lives in that house, would be like, hey, that's a good idea. Um... And then he, he, he retrofits this vacuum cleaner to actually like a ghost capturing device. And it goes back to the whole theme of the original Mario Brothers of trust your tools. Always trust your tools. <laughs> and it's him trying to clean out this house. And in my mind, like all the ghosts look like the way they do in the video game. So it's John Leguizamo like interacting with these big cartoony ghosts and everything. Yep. And then there needs to be a, a, a ghost that looks like Mario from the video games. And he's like, oh, that, there's Mario. And he, you know, the whole thing is, is, is Luigi dealing of grief and having to move on with his life and mario being like you can do this i'm proud of you and like we can even like get like a voice clip of bob hoskins from the original mario brothers because i know i think he says that somewhere in the movie like i'm proud of you luigi yeah but like like in the end after he's defeated the big bad guy in the house wow that was really loud (laughs) (laughs) it was it was the Um, ghost yeah after he's defeated the big the, the big ghost the the Mario ghost will appear and then he'll turn into like like a specter version of Bob Hoskins and he'll be like I'm proud of you Luigi <laughs> that's my dream movie wonderful yeah and if it's your dream movie then it's live action yeah 100 percent like and it's funny like so I'm I'm assuming you've seen the the casting announce- announcement for the new Mario Brothers movie I have not oh well we could talk about that on air hold on say something real quick something real quick. All right, just want to make sure I was getting uh, volume out of both headphones. I don't normally use these headphones. Okay. Uh, so everyone's been tagging tagging me in this um, because I'm a big Mario Brothers fan. They announced the cast for the new Super Mario Brothers movie that's coming out in 2022. Okay. I'm rolling right now. I've got it pulled up, and it's a strange cast, let me just say. <laughs> Because to cast as Mario, they have Chris Pratt. Okay. Which is just a strange choice. Especially because, if you think about it, back at least in our day, in the 90s, it was always impl- it wasn't until like Mario 64 that Mario actually had a voice. I always figured that Mario was an Italian-American. You know? So that's why like Bob Hoskins works with his gruff voice. Or Captain Lou Albano. Yeah. I can't imagine, is Chris Pratt going to do an Italian accent? Is he just going to be Chris Pratt, which will be even more awkward? <laughs> well, and there then is, they have... There's the uh, the very confused ethnic origins of Mario mm-hmm. as it is, where it's like the Japanese-designed Italian plumber with a Mexican mustache and, yeah. you know... <laughs> It's 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 a very confused thing. So like we have Chris Pratt as Mario, we have Anya Taylor Joy as Princess Peach, which I kind of like. Uh, Seth Rogen as Donkey Kong. Okay. <laughs> Jack Black as Bowser. 
Nice. That one I, I stand by. That That's a strong choice. Keegan-Michael Key is Toad. <laughs> so this is animated, correct? Yeah. Charlie Day is Luigi, which kind of weirdly works. Okay. Fred Armisen is playing Cranky Kong. <laughs> I like how many of the Kongs are going to be featured I know. In this. I'm also really amused that they actually got Charles Martinet, who does the voice of Mario, to oh, be okay. in this movie, but they have him credited as surprise cameos. Okay. Like, what a... Like, you know, the man's been voicing Mario since he's had a voice, and, like, <laughs> we're going to put you in this movie, but not how you expect. <laughs> So I I I don't know what to think. I, I'm I'm gonna go into it, but like when people were like compl- once again when like people were complaining about the the voice uh, uh, voice actors in this film, they're like, you thought this cast was weird. Look at the one from the '90s. Like the the cast from the '90s is fucking fine, guys. <laughs> do we anytime we talk about Mario, do we really need to use this as an excuse to trash the '90s one? I'm also a very big advocate of wait and see. Like I, yeah. Whenever there's any casting announcements or or pre-release info, like everybody, all anything with a big fan base, it immediately gets shat on. Um, and then the movie comes out, and if you go into it without that initial like pissed off attitude that you had about you know whatever they pre-released. Yeah. You know, wait wait and see what they actually do with it. You don't... Just because you know an actor's resume doesn't mean you know what they'll yeah. do with this film. Yeah. And then, like... So, like, a couple thoughts I have. Someone said, like, online that they're like, oh, Chris Pratt's not going to sound anything like Mario because why would they hire a a celebrity if they don't want to use a celebrity's voice? But, however, I use the example of... Did you see the Adams Family movie from 2018? The animated no, I film. Not. Well, if you look at the Adam Sandler movie, they have like Oscar Isaac playing Gomez, but he doesn't sound like Oscar Isaac in there. You know, they have Charlize Theron playing Mortician, and she doesn't sound like Charlize Theron. So, right. but like, I guess ultimately, like I, I I'm going to wait and see because I'm going to see this movie regardless. And I, like the casting choices are strange, uh, but they could work. My ultimate thing is like, why don't we just get voice actors? Yeah. Like, because here's the thing. The people who want to see the Mario Brothers movies are going to see it. I don't think there's going to be anyone who's going to be like, holy shit, Jack Black is Bowser. Now I have to go see I don't feel like <laughs> celebrities are going to what's going to sell this movie. Yeah. You know, so why don't I just get some voice actors? Um, though some of them have done a decent amount of voice acting. True, but it's not the Chris same. Pratt. True, but it's not the same thing. Like, a lot of times when Chris Pratt voices things, he's just playing, he just sounds like Chris Pratt. I'm not saying he can't, that's not a valid thing, but we have so many voice actors uh, who just don't get work because celebrities are doing the job <laughs> yeah. for them. I'd also, going back to what you said about uh, Chris Pratt doing an Italian accent or, or Bob Ho- I think Bob Hoskins was a great choice. Uh, I stand bad by that. I like the the gruff voice that you were talking about, but the Mario from the video games doesn't really have an Italian voice. No, no, no. He he. Well, he's he he does. He definitely has an Italian accent. It's a me. Well, it it's <laughs> it's not a a realist. It's um extremely it's cartoonish. Like he doesn't actually sound like an Italian. He actually sounds like a smart-ass American doing a terrible <laughs> Italian accent. Well, Which you know, there might be some truth in that. Kind of <laughs> you know, like, I guess I, I, I'm almost like, I'm, I'm, I, 
I'm ex- honestly excited to see like what he does with it. Like, yeah. Is it going to be Chris Pratt sounding, or is he, or is he Peter Griffin ordering <laughs> you know pasta at a restaurant? Yeah, you know who knows. <laughs> so like, it's a weird choice. It's not what I would have done, but no one wants the movie that I would have done. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm gonna go in and be like, I'm gonna see what the fuck they do with this. Yes. Yep. No, I I hadn't even heard there was a Mario movie being put together. I I just weirdly love the casting of Seth Rogen as as Donkey Kong. Like that kind of works. Yep. In like in in like I don't know. (laughs) And now I'm just picturing Donkey Kong and Cranky Kong just hanging around smoking pot. (laughs) Oh, that's how I always picture. Like honestly, what? Why not? Right? right at this point, you want to throw these barrels down a ramp? <laughs> <laughs> honestly, like I, I, I picture. I don't know if you ever watched um, a TV show called "Fuck That's Delicious" with a this rapper named Action Bronson. I, I have seen a few episodes and uh, have a few Action Bronson songs under my belt. Yes, <laughs> I, I can't. For some reason, I just keep imagining, like, what would Mario be like if Action Bronson voiced <laughs> That would And, and it'd get, like, Action Bronson, while a charismatic personality is not an actor. Oh, he, no, not at all. He but has I think done it... acting, you know, air quotes. But, um, so you would be getting Action Bronson. You wouldn't be getting a character performed by him, which would be amazing. <laughs> I just, I just picturing like all the dialogue that Action Bronson had in King of Staten Island, right? Just as yep. Mario, <laughs> like, why are you? Ble- I was stabbed by somebody. <laughs> you were stabbed. It's not important. <laughs> that was an amazing cameo. <laughs> it was. <laughs> oh, now I just want to like. I, I want to, like, take clips from the old Mario Brothers cartoon and just voice in Action Bronson in, in a bunch of the clips. Right. If anyone, if any one of our five listeners is listening to this. <laughs> and it has more free time than us. Yeah. Uh, no, so I, I had to talk about Mario for, nice. you know. Nice. All right, let take a breath. And then, um, if, you got, if you don't got anything else, we can get right to the intro. Let's do it. Sip of aha for the work man. <laughs> I got nothing. Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Virus, and with me, as always, is a man who has multi-purpose tool guy on his business card. Still Nick Richards. All right. So on today's episode of the podcast, we're doing a request from one of our Patreon patrons, Stephen Millick, and we are tackling the 2016 surrealist dark comedy Swiss Army Man. However, I should also mention... That if this episode seems a little disjointed and <laughs> ultimately strange, it is because me and Nick, rec- this is the second time Nick and I have recorded this episode. Something happened last time we recorded it, and I lost all of my audio. 
But so, trust us when we say it was brilliant. Our yeah, best episode yeah. ever. It was the probably the greatest thing you would have ever heard. We had so much insight. At one point, Leonard Malton joined the call, <laughs> and he gave his us his 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 in depth persona, and he told me with a wink in his eye, "This will never happen again, and no one will ever believe you." <laughs> but it happened. Trust but, us. There's no, there's no record of it. We have Sorry. Nick's audio from that recording, but all of mine is gone. At and Leonard point, was over at Michael's house, so yes, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> he literally stopped in. He knocked on the door. It was phenomenal. <laughs> at one point, I considered listening back in on Nick's episode and trying to see if I could fill back in what <laughs> I thought I was talking about. But that seemed like more work than just re-recording the episode. Yep. So, Stephen, my heartfelt apologies. If this is not the episode that you intended, I we definitely tried. This episode has, seems to be cursed. <laughs> because we definitely tried to get this episode done a couple of times, much sooner than we actually did, and this stuff just kept going wrong. <laughs> but we're trying. We're doing our best. But hopefully here it is. <laughs> yes, hopefully here it is. So, Swiss Army Man. Hank is stranded on a small island and has been desperately trying to reach someone with little homemade notes he writes on trash pardon me it's always right when you have to talk that you feel like you have to burp yep he's been out there for quite a while and he's losing hope by the time we meet him he's stranding sorry by the time we meet him he's standing with a noose around his neck ready to end it all and just as he's on the verge he sees something wash up to shore hank hoping for some good news runs over to the shore only to find a corpse such is his luck the only person he the only person he sees in ages is of course dead. He tries to resuscitate the body and waxes philosophically about his place in the world, only for the corpse to let out a fart. All is lost. Hank tries hanging himself again, but notices that the corpse starts farting a lot. Like, it's trying to get his attention. The corpse's body is convulsing with flatulence and begins to move across the water. Hank hears what's going on, runs after the corpse screaming, take me with you, and jumps on and rides the farting corpse like a jet ski. This is how Hank met Manny, and this is only the first seven minutes of the movie. <laughs> a strange film by Daniel Schernert and Daniel, Qu- sorry, Daniel Schernert and Daniel Kwan, Swiss Army Man, is a film that revels in its own weirdness and prides itself on rising from lowbrow to highbrow and whimsical. The film caught a lot of attention when it was released by A24 and had Daniel Radcliffe in one of the, his most unusual post-Harry Potter roles. It was affectionately known as the Farting Corpse movie. I think However, it was the film that Daniel Radcliffe was born to play. It was. You know, Harry Potter be damned, this <laughs> is Daniel Radcliffe's quintessential role. Yes. However, it was very well reviewed by critics and was nominated for the Independent Spirit Award for Best Film in... Uh, the and won the Best Directing Award at the Sundance Film Festival. The film stars Daniel Radcliffe, Paul Dano, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead. It was written by, written and directed by the duo known as Daniels, with music by Andy Hall, Robert McDowell, and its two stars. From 2016, this is... Get home. Okay, buddy? 
Okay, buddy. from starvation. You're special. You're special. There's seven billion people on the planet. You might be lucky enough to bump into the one person you want to spend the rest of your life with. This is the life I've forgotten. This is just the beginning. Trailer. 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 Lots of farts. <laughs> so, Nick, we are back again talking about Swiss Army Man. Yeah. What did we think about it? <laughs> what did we think about it? Do you want to start or should I? Sure, I'll start. Um, I and and as Michael said in the intro, like we're we're doing. I wanted to watch it again, both for the episode, but I said in our last recording, like this is a film that I have a lot of feelings about that I'm still grappling with, and I want to watch it several more times to explore deeper what's happening in the film mm-hmm. um and so i really wish i would have had that been able to watch it again so that i'd be more uh, coherent but um but i thought this was a a great film this was my kind of film um it's ridiculous and quirky but they're trying to say something with all of the ridiculousness and that that is my pocket that's where I love to live in terms of watching and making film and stories broadly. Um, I also thought it was a really, like, excellent example of low-budget filmmaking, of what you can do with almost nothing resource-wise. You know, it takes place out in nature, out in the woods for most of it. Um, You know, I, I don't know what special effects budget it took to make the farting corpse glide across the water. But um, for the most part, there wasn't a whole lot of, like, there, there wasn't much in the way of effects. There wasn't much in the way of, like, it, it, the whole cast was, like, three or four people. Um, it, it was really stripped down, and they did a lot with it. Like, it was a great story. It didn't need a lot of production in order to tell a really interesting story. Mm-hmm. So this film was, like I said, exactly... It was, it was at times precisely the film I was expecting it to be, and also at times not at all the films I, film I was expecting it to be. But I also didn't know what to expect going into it. Yeah. With a title like um, like Swiss Army Man. Like, <laughs> I was like, okay, what does that mean? Because like, I was even trying to like go back to the trailer and... While they, I don't, I don't remember. I, they might have hinted at some of like the fantastical elements that were to come. I, I feel like only thing I could ever remember about this movie was it's a guy lost on an island with a farting corpse, and that's <laughs> all I knew. And I was like, how are they going to sustain this? Right. But what I liked so much about it is 
is it's fantastical. It's weird. It almost has like this this uh, Peter Pan and the Lost Boys type quality to them living in the woods together. Yeah. Um, but it, at times, it's also just this uh, like a genuinely sweet movie until it's not. Right. <laughs> um, and it, expl- it 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 goes to this range of emotions of like friendship and uh, male relationships, and it's. It's so much more than just calling it the farting corpse movie. <laughs> right. I, I think the when this film is at its best is when they're exploring what you just talked about with, like, exploring male friendship and um, uh, the need for... Or, not the need, the value in an honesty that most relationships don't have like a, a real visceral honesty, the kind of honesty that you have with yourself because you're forced to, mm-hmm. you know, that, um, it was be- because his, his friend in this, his companion in this is a corpse, even though he is ashamed when he says things out loud, talking to this corpse, um, it, it is this exploration of like those things you're ashamed of, on the inside, but then what if there is this mirror outside of yourself to explore them and, like, come to terms with them? Because all of the things that this corpse does, the Swiss army element of this corpse, are based on, like, things that we're, that that humans tend to be ashamed of. Farting, erections, Mm -hmm. um, even when, when water was coming out of his mouth, like, and then he was like, drinking the water right out of his mouth there you know there there are all of everything that the the corpse did to help save him were based in these like very embarrassing body issues yeah 100 percent and like fuck i feel like we had some good analysis we, oh we we said so many good things about this <laughs> <laughs> I ultimately really love this movie, um, and it, it, it's it's such a hard movie to wrap your mind around because one of the things that we did have a point of cont- contention with is was the ending. Oh where, yes, um, for me, um, I feel like we landed slightly different. Where I remember, I feel like you were landing a little more on the side of sympathy with with Hank, where yes. I was I was kind of like thrown off by how creepy i i felt he was in the long run yeah we interpreted his um his actions towards the the female character that that has been this like uh really a MacGuffin for him through the whole thing it was what pushed him forward this I mean, it was to be rescued, but also, like, she was what he was going for. And you assume in the first half that they're together, and then you kind of learn that they're not. Um, where it felt more stalkery to you and less stalkery to me. Though I think, um, like, what was his fixation on her appropriate? Probably not. Um, but I think it's part of that exploration of the that internal embarrassment externalized. You know, mm-hmm. a fascination that you have with somebody else 
from afar um, that you can't really explore, but you have thoughts that are more appropriate for somebody that you are in a relationship with, you know, that, so we could look at all of the times he interacted with her and, and, you know, was that an acceptable amount of observation and appreciation or an inappropriate amount? You know, where is that line? But I don't know, for me, like, that's not the interesting part of that element of the film. It's more of the exploration of the the em, the externalized embarrassment that I find interesting. I guess I, I find it both interesting. I find... Um, so, are you familiar with the term... Uh, Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Oh, yes. Yep. <laughs> so, I actually... I didn't think of this last time we recorded this, so this is new insight. Ooh! Um, so, I, I find the relationship between Hank and... Let's get her name. Sarah, to be, to be, very, to be very interesting because the film portrays her as, like, this, this almost mythical deity that has both Hank and Manny's attention... And then, you know, even for Manny, it's, you know, it's Hank playing Sarah. Right. But there's almost like this mythical quality about her that she will cure all of his problems. She will cure his loneliness. His life will be better with her. And I was thinking about it. It's really interesting casting to cast uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead in this role. Because for a lot of people, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is best known for her role as Ramona Flowers in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Which... In a, for a lot of people, is considered like is a perfect example of this manic pixie dream girl. Okay. Where here's this this character that comes that comes into Scott's life, and who he feels like he needs to save this this feeling that uh, she's some like um, fever dream of of perfection that's going to change his life and make things exciting and make things whimsical and interesting. Um, so casting Mary Elizabeth Winstead in this role is really interesting because it's almost like a bait and switch for that type of character. Like in Hank's mind and even in Manny's mind, which is, you know, I guess Hank's mind. You could argue, yeah, that it's <laughs> um, the same mind. You know, it's, like, it's like a Tyler Durden thing. <laughs> yeah. um, I am Manny the parting corpse. <laughs> um you could make the argument that in his mind that she's going to like fix all of his problems. You know, it's, it's, it's like there's dudes out there that think, well, once they get a girlfriend, their entire life is going to, is going to fix because they are too scared to fix themselves. So it's almost like a bait and switch type thing. But by the time he actually meets Sarah and he gets to have a real interaction with her, his house of cards comes falling down and you realize she's not this thing at all for him. He has built this woman up in his mind to be this thing and she's not that thing at all. And I kind of love that, you know, that because Manny and Hank both believe that by the time they get to finally meet Sarah, they're going to go live happily ever after. And he's going to profess his love to her. And, you know, there's even some really nice moments between Manny and, and Hank about that. But, like, what does it hurt to talk to her? What's yeah. going to happen? And, you know, have you ever been, you know, and it's 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 Hank talk, saying it to Manny, even though Hank know he knows he doesn't have the nerve to do any of this himself. So I don't quite know what my point is here, but I kind of love that casting. Because originally I was like, man, it's almost a shame that they cast an actress as good as Mary Elizabeth Winstead in this role, and she's barely in it. Right. Just for and I don't know if this bit. was... Yeah, I don't know if this was the the filmmaker's intent or not, but it's 
it almost feels like it could be intentional. It could be an intentional, like, you know, here is this type of character that this woman is very known for, even though she only played that type of character once. Let's kind of turn that on its head. Yeah, I would... I, I don't think it's quite a counter to what you said. I guess more of an addition or or uh, another perspective on what you just said. Um, I would be more in line with with what you're saying if when the two of them are brought together at the end of the film, mm-hmm. he reacted differently. If there was either he is like, okay, finally, here's my moment, or even if he like there was an even if it was internal or or facial expression of him processing oh this isn't what i thought it would be i for for me and my viewing of it he never had any intention of ever talking to her and not because he was just too afraid um but it's it's simply um what he's doing to process his loneliness. You know, he's, it, it is, it is simply a, a processing of loneliness. He, while she is in his head, like she's just, she's just a face to him mm-hmm. that is slapped on the idea of a partner. It's not even any, like a manic pixie dream girl. It's the kooky personality that's going to come in, at, like like you said, and, and mix things up and make their life more adventurous. And I don't think that's what she is for him, even before, well, you know, when they're on the island. It's just a face and nothing more. And that's, like, really well represented in the fact that it's just a picture on the phone. Like, it's not like he's having memories of her laughing or... You know, it's it's just him processing loneliness. Well, I guess one could even argue that, like, maybe that's how it began. But, like, as there – as – actually, one could even argue that while he she may not be that to Hank, she starts becoming that for Manny. Sure, sure. So then- Because, like – because, you know – in, in their recreations of what their life could be and how these situations could play out, Hank is kind of playing his idealized version of what this person is. Right. And so in this is like inception level shit, you know, <laughs> since, you know, if you have to think about as Manny is Hank and, you know, like I, um, like he, he starts becoming that for Manny where it's this almost like idealized, perfect, quirky girl that just kind of enters his life on a bus but even manny like he's he's processing that if if we kind of separate that they're the same person for a second we're just looking Mm -hmm. at manny's interaction with so pretend manny is his own person yeah um and there's even arguments that that could be right right um manny is like just learning what love is and like oh this is a good feeling oh I want to smash my face against her face. Like again, it's not. <laughs> it's not that she is this person who is is amazing to him. It's just that I, you know, it's it's like ten year olds making out with their pillows. That's basically what this is. It's not about her. 
It's not. Yeah. It it has nothing to do with her. She is just a picture on a phone until mm-hmm. they start role playing. But then it's still like it's not. It it is nothing about her, the person. It's mm-hmm. it's just a stand in. It's a cardboard cutout for a person that I might be with someday. You know. So I. So maybe that's why it felt less creepy to me, mm-hmm. um, because it really wasn't her that they either of them were after. Yeah, I don't know. I guess, I guess it still feels creepy because it's like <laughs> here's the person that he seemingly met on the bus. And Didn't even meet. He just saw. On a well, bus. he saw on the bus, and you know he kind of like inter- he pretty much internet stalked her, and then like <laughs> got all like these these you know pictures of her and i guess one could argue that that main picture of her in the yellow dress came from her instagram you know one could potentially also argue that he took it because you seemingly he was outside of her house the entire time and let's be real i don't think that was an accident there, at least that, i maybe because i'm a pessimist i don't no, think that was an accident that was the point that you brought up in our last recording that actually uh flipped the script for me a bit and like made me think that uh, your analysis could be more in line with what the filmmakers intended, um, because I didn't necessarily make that connection watching it. And I went, "Oh yeah, if he is camped out back there knowingly, then that does change things. Then that mm-hmm. does become stalking." But like, if we looked at the Instagram thing, I think a really interesting conversation that just as as people in a new world of online profiles, at what point is curiously looking somebody up online, when does that become internet stalking? Mm -hmm. You know, we, I, I believe we only saw him look at the, the, her online profile once. And that seems fine to me. That doesn't seem stalkery to look up a stranger online um, you know, where, where is the line or where's the gray area? I, I think that's, mm-hmm. that'd be an interesting conversation and one that this film obviously prompted us to have. Mm-hmm. And it is, I guess, interesting too, that there's, once again, there's no one way to read this, you know, is, is his, are his actions innocent or are they inappropriate? Is Manny real or is Manny not real? Um, is Hank insane and potentially been on the news before or not you know like it 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 asks all these little questions the the news thing i'd I'd like to bring that up a bit more because that was another one that like i i recognized when it happened but then like a minute later in the film i had totally forgotten it is there's that moment where the news crew is there and he's like hey don't i the the camera guy's like hey i know you or i recognize you yeah, which has always stuck out with me because I thought maybe they would touch on it again. And they never know. do. It's never acknowledged ever again. And no. that, there's something behind that that neither of us picked up on that I think could be a really interesting uh, bit of evidence to support this conversation that we're having about um, what's he, what is his relationship with this woman how creepy is it or not you know <laughs> like all of that i think that is a bit of evidence that we aren't able to apply and could be the answer mm-hmm. yeah and because like it, it, it's it's with a film that with you know that 
with a film like this that where it feels like every little piece of information is intentional because you know there, you have some filmmakers like let's use Quentin Tarantino as an example he'll have two characters just talk about a cheeseburger <laughs> and that has no relevance to the story it's character building you could argue that that it's yeah. it's getting you know the character you know Quentin Tarantino goes against that old adage that if it's not important to the story don't add it into the film these filmmakers while I've not, I don't know much about them feel like they are very much like if we're going to include it it should be have some sort of relevancy have some of importance and something like the cameraman saying a line like don't I know you from something like that doesn't feel like something that any writer anywhere would just add in for no reason. Right. That's not even a Quentin Tarantino. Oh, that's been a character develop. Like wh- whose character does that line develop? No one. Yeah. <laughs> so like for me, like that feels very much like, um, um, like it's the film was trying to say something, trying to point some fingers. And then like, even when we eventually meet Hank's dad, like Hank's dad has, He's clearly worried about him, and not in a way like, oh, my son's antisocial type of worried. It's like, this... He might be too far gone. Yeah, correct. Like, to me, it felt very much like in the the end of the film when Hank when Hank's dad showed up, and Hank's hiding from his dad. Because at first when Hank's dad showed up, I was like, is this guy Manny's dad? Because like, he came straight towards the gurney. I assumed to check to see if that was Hank. Right. Checked it. Or no, no. Actually, he didn't check it. it. His his dad said, "I don't need to see it." Yep, yep. Um, So he's either just assuming that his son is dead, or is concerned that whoever is under there is because of his son. Okay. Um, But he's very closed off and unaffected, and not because he doesn't care. It almost feels like he's very closed off and unaffected because he's afraid. That something bad has happened. That he that it was something that he knew could have happened. It's almost like I don't want this to be right. Right. Well, and look at um, the relationship between Hank and his dad versus Hank and Manny. Like that goes back to what we were saying about um, like brutal honesty, and not not brutal as in I'm going to criticize you, but brutal as in saying the things that you're embarrassed to say or worried to say, um, that you're nervous to say, um, that honesty that he had in his relationship with Manny versus the, you know, the counter to that is the relationship that he has with his dad, where they're not communicating, they're not mm-hmm. talking, they're hiding all of those feelings, they're keeping them closed off. For the sake of, you know, whatever, the reason why we humans do that. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it kind of... And, and that also, I think, gets further supported when they're on the beach at the end. And they're all there to watch Manny's farting corpse take off. Like, and the dad smiles because for, for that second, uh, Hank does, like, say, Yep, I'm going to be that honest person that Manny allowed me to be even though it's embarrassing and even though you're all going to judge me for it. Um, he, I, I forget what the line is, but um, when he's down at the water's edge with the cop, he says something that is he like, says, I think he said something like, it was me. And that was after the, yes. car, the corpse farts. He's, he took ownership of the fart, even though it wasn't him. Or was it? But it right. I, you know, you know, because I imagine it's very much like that old, like, whoever smelt it, dealt it type yes. thing. Or like, uh, you know, but it's like, he knows it wasn't him who farted, but he wanted to take he, the ownership he of was it. taking ownership of the thing that is embarrassing to take ownership over. 
and his dad like kind of chuckles i i believe if i'm remembering the order of events right and it it just um i i think part of what was being said is our our hesitance to communicate with somebody else out of embarrassment uh, stagnates our relationships with other people. Yeah, and and then the the development of that is our judgment of other people for those things. The the guy that farts in the elevator, and you're like, ah, oh, Jesus, really? Like, mm-hmm. you know, it. I I think the real message of the story is somewhere in that realm. Yeah. And go figure that it took a you know man riding off on a farting corpse jet ski to to prove how not insane he is. Right. Or nope, he's totally insane. Yeah. You can be you can be batshit and still make some good points. <laughs> yeah. Like and and that ending once again kind of goes back to like was it real? Was it not? Because it's like when that when the event started happening and the corpse started erupting of flatulence again and zoomed off like the cameraman pulled up his camera and started recording it so seemingly there is potentially some evidence of this yeah, of, yeah. Of having had happened and somebody once again, other than don't know. Hank observed it yes because like you know one could believe that it was like um you know hank clammed up once people were around because he didn't want to seem crazy yeah. uh, or didn't want you know to reveal himself once again i think i said last time that this film is this film is essentially toy story if you have a very loose definition of what a toy is (laughs) yes because it's like it's kind of got the same thing of toy story where like you know they're they're sentient they're alive but as soon as andy comes around it's like okay everyone and then they just fall over right yep and that's kind of what like manny was doing you know only with adults because he he revealed himself to the child he did yep um, there's a very, like, Michael Gondry-esque quality to this film that, mm-hmm. that I love. You know, the science of sleep or eternal sunshine, the, the way that, uh, the Daniels, uh, play with reality in a silly, whimsical way, especially when they start, like, building the, the bus and a, a romantic dinner out of, like, all of the junk food Mm-hmm. detritus that is left in the woods um i i think that's where um i i think i said a different uh thrill house moment last time but in, in hindsight now i'm i'm thinking that maybe that was and and who's to say i can have more than one and yeah. more than one thrill house moment so at least one of my thrill house moments for this film was um as that started to develop, as they were, like, building these elaborate sets mm-hmm. out of trash. For me, the Thrill House moment was, I think it might have been the same one last time, when um, Manny first spoke to him. And, like, they are in that cave, and, like, they started talking. And then, like, this whole, like, unreliable narrator type thing came up. Like, I, I absolutely love the... The scene where where Hank is humming Jurassic Park and Manny starts humming back to him, and then he's like, "Oh, you know Jurassic Park? I don't know what Jurassic Park is." <laughs> and I like they were so smart with his diet with Manny's dialogue, where it was all built off of the things that Hank was saying. 
Yeah. That was really then, great. And then, like, later on, like, Manny, like, when, was trying to think of her name and called her Laura Dern. And he's like, <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Laura. Laura Dern. <laughs> nope. Um, and actually, it's funny that you mentioned it feels like a Michelle Gondry film. Because I think I really, I, I, to me, I said last time that it reminded me of his film Be Kind Rewind. Um, okay. It had this handmade quality to it. I don't know if you know the story for Be Kind Rewind, no, but nope. it's. It's about two uh, video store clerk played by Jack Black and Common, the, ra- the rapper nice. Common. Okay, and they accidentally erase all the ta- the footage, all the tapes in their video store. <laughs> so, but people want to rent their rent the tapes, so they using their own equipment go out and reshoot zero budget recreations of these films. Okay. Um. You know, so like they'll, I don't remember what movies, but they'll do things like 2001 A Space Odyssey and they'll do Jurassic Park and do things with absolutely no money just in the backyard. Yep. Uh, and it becomes like really popular. Okay. <laughs> it's, I mean, there, there are certainly YouTube channels and TikTok, you know, and, and all this stuff of people doing this of, you know, 10 second, zero budget, you know, films. Yeah. So, like, because I had the same thought, like, all around me, kind of like that magical realism whimsy of of a Michelle Gondry film. And I also truly loved the fact that they were, you know, creating these, like, set pieces and creating this, I guess, their own version of reality in, because, like, I love that tactile quality. And I also love the way that the music accompanied that because, yeah. you know, when the, the acapella score first came in, I was like, oh, that's an interesting choice. But then as the world kept, like, unveiling itself, I'm like, oh, they're scoring their, like, they're making their own reality around stuff around us. It would yep. make sense that they would score it with music that only they can make. And that's with their mouth and their humming and right. singing. And, and I liked how it started out so simple with just the humming. And mm-hmm. then builds and builds as it went on. But I, I want to talk about the soundtrack more, but uh, just as a point of clarification before we dive into that. Am I pronouncing Gondry's first name wrong? <laughs> I've always taken it as Michelle because okay. he's French. Like okay. Michelle. Like, but I could be wrong. I've I've never heard it said. I've only read it. So Yeah. Um, but, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I've always okay. called him Michelle Gondry. You know, I then, feel like either one could be right. I'll keep saying Michael. You keep, keep saying Michelle. And at some point, one of us is going to be so embarrassed it will be like having your best friend be a farting corpse. Well, it's kind of like um, when we just did uh, the Spoiler Room podcast, and apparently I've been saying Christopher Lambert's name wrong this right, entire yeah, time. Right, yeah, we learned. Christopher Lambert. <laughs> and you know what? If anything, this podcast is unique about in terms of film criticism, it's that we embrace the embarrassment of, you know, with the original concept being the embarrassment of having not seen something that other people think is great, but also mm-hmm. mispronouncing, thing, you know, people's names. Yeah, I remember when I, I, when we, when I talked about the movie The Lore, it was all Polish names, and that was a <laughs> struggle and a half. <laughs> At least that one, like, right off the bat, you're like, I am not going to get any of this right, I will do yeah. my best. Yeah, or like when we did the raid and they had all these Taiwanese yep. names. Like, this is going <laughs> to be tough. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, so soundtrack. Soundtrack. Yes. What so do you want good. to say about the soundtrack? No, just uh, that was really good. <laughs> that was it. That, that was, that's was all, all you need to say. <laughs> it was a. <all. laughs> um, now we started really good. to to touch on it, like the the way that it was all the two of them singing. And layers, the amount of times that they worked in them singing the Jurassic Park theme song was also amazing. 
mm-hmm. and how it just went outside of even their Jurassic Park references, and it just built into this journey that they were on. Yes. Yeah, actually, and then like a Frankenstein movie. Raina just dropped a truth bomb on me. Huh. That Jurassic Park is is a Frankenstein film. Oh shit. <laughs> oh goes, shit. Oh shit. <laughs> I think that's more revealing than Swiss Army Man being a Toy Story sequel. Oh, yeah, yep. <laughs> she just blew her minds. <laughs> now I can't not see Jurassic Park as a Frankenstein film. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess well in in I guess no, it, tr- it tracks because like in Frankenstein, like the the monster wasn't he was just you know he w- he wasn't a monster at all. And he, in the Jurassic Park, they're not monsters; they're just reacting the way they would in nature. A, a, a creature brought into the world against their will, and then treated by a society outside of their control a certain way, and then brought down yeah yeah like that all completely tracks <laughs> i'm going back to my notes to see if i have anything else to type about swiss army man i feel like i do but i once again i'm gonna reply uh, uh apologize again to stephen miller <laughs> this episode is not what i wanted it to be <laughs> like i know at some point we're gonna rewatch it and we will ta- talk about it again um but yeah and once again my notes were very simple my three notes were, if you don't know Jurassic Park, you don't know shit. <laughs> Be kind, rewind for insane people, and just holy shit. <laughs> Great notes. Mine, soundtrack slash score, garbage slash junk food, brilliant example of a low-budget film. <laughs> yeah. Well, is there anything you want to say about the, the, the use of, like, garbage and the surroundings around them to kind of create their reality or i think that's one of the elements that i think there's more to than i observed on the first pass um you know just at at first glance there's the the he's building his reality out of the discarded remnants of of a society that he's not a part of or not directly involved in or has a problem connecting with um mm-hmm. that i think there's more to it and i'm just not there yet so I, i'll sound like an idiot more than i usually do if i try and talk about it <laughs> i'm also trying to wonder like too if, if one could argue so you know this is just i'm playing devil's advocate i don't sure. know if i necessarily feel this way but it's but just let's throw to it to the wall and see if it sticks yeah i'm trying to just stir up some conversation so like in a lot of ways Hank's character kind of reminds me of like obviously not fully there but like kind of reminds me of kind of like an incel type character okay um, um, and with pe- some people like that they they feel loneliness but it's self-imposed loneliness yeah um, and not say necess- necessarily how Hank is written but once again I'm just trying to stir up some conversation Hank Goes off in the middle of the woods. He, you know, the fi- entire film is about his loneliness and how he's got no one. But then one could argue that Hank chose to go off to the woods to choose this world of loneliness. Yeah, um, because one thing that uh, I think is important about that is we have no idea how Hank got 
on that island. We have no, no so idea. Like the we don't movies, even know if the island is is was real. Like typically, with a deserted island film, you spend most of the film with them surviving on the island. And this one was like the film started with him escaping from the island. So yeah, yeah. I think. Um, there's a lot of exploration to do about whether or not this island really exists. Like, how literal was him being on an island versus is it just the the island of loneliness in his heart? Mm-hmm. I, I would say, like, for me, I don't think Hank is an incel. I think the the character portrayed in the film could easily become an incel. Like, this could mm-hmm. totally be an incel origin story, depending on what happens next. 100%. Like, I guess maybe that's a better way to put it, is, like, I feel like it was kind of tracking where um, it could definitely become that way. Yeah. It, it's not quite there yet, but... And that's kind of know. the crossroad that he's left at at the end of the film. And I guess one could argue that if he not had if he had not met Manny or you know had not found a, a dead corpse on the <laughs> the, the um, beach, maybe he would have gotten to that point, or yeah, probably would have ended up killing himself. We uh, don't truly know, right? Uh, but it, had he not to to reword that because I think what you said is true, but um, had he not discovered the importance of of um, not venting off, or but expressing all of those very intimate thoughts that he was having, uh-huh. you, using that as a point of connection with somebody else, because uh-huh. these are like that kind of loneliness is relatively universal. I mean, people uh-huh. might not acknowledge it or understand it, and some people might not feel it, but loneliness is something that we've all felt. Oh, 100%. Like we, we, we've all felt like outsiders. We've all yeah. felt like we don't interact properly in certain situations with the world. Like, like I, I felt for Hank because I felt like Hank. Mm-hmm. And I, I, can, I haven't talked to everybody in the world, but I believe that there is some kind of human universe, universe universality, universe, uh, commonness <laughs> of that feeling. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. So I guess this also leads kind of into a conversation um, about the relationship between Hank and Manny. Because, you know, it's it first off just be, kind of becomes like they become survival partners and Hank's kind of using Manny just as a tool. Um, but <laughs> then they become friends and then one could argue that they become... Lovers. More than friends, <laughs> not, yeah. Not like, how are you going with that? <laughs> yeah, and like, hell, that, that scene of... of of the, the essentially the kiss scene between what, Man, yeah. between Manny and when Hank, Hank under, underwater was like one of the best scenes of the film and also weirdly romantic yeah, and you know no. they exploded out of the water like this movie does a great job of like taking internal feelings and finding a way to manifest it in a visual sense even if it's fantastical and un- impossible but that's what works so well about this film um, it's ridiculous it, and extremely honest. 
I guess like okay. one thing I like about this film is I read that the the the, two, the the writer directors, you know, they they said they don't like fart jokes. They think they're <laughs> it's lowbrow. They don't like survival films. They don't like acapella soundtracks. And they took and it's a great testament to filmmakers out there where like okay, if someone's like I don't like a romantic comedy, well, what don't you like about them? Go write a romantic comedy you'd want to see. Right. Take some take stuff that you don't normally like and see if you can make it work in a, in a way that you would like. Yeah. And I think that's why this film is so successful is they took you know like okay here's things that we don't like how do we use them in a way that make that make us like them it's like it's like if you're a cook and you have these ingredients you don't really like that much but you have to use them like fuck how do you like it's like watching an episode of chopped right yeah you know or uh, to, may, to maybe you don't like jackfruit but you have to figure out a way to use it <laughs> to continue the food metaphor like i grew up thinking i hated brussels sprouts well, that was because the main way that I had them served to me was boiled and thrown yeah. on a plate. Like, that is not a way to serve Brussels sprouts. And then as I started cooking on my own, like, I discovered that if you cook anything in bacon fat and add balsamic vinegar and, like, dried fruit to it, like, it's kind of yummy. You know, that the the genre, you, I think it's a bit of a... Of a um, inaccuracy to if you were to say i don't like and then fill in a genre you know i don't like horror films i don't like romantic comedies i don't like dramas because there's while while we as people try and lump everything into categories they are not like it's there are good and bad films in any genre Mm -hmm. and and even if you don't necessarily get excited about the idea of watching two people fall in love you know that doesn't mean that there aren't really good example you know really good films where two people happen to be falling in love you know mm-hmm. so i also want to go back to talking about the relationship between going about two people falling in love talk about the relationship between hank and manny and how they fell in love <laughs> i'm i'm almost like uh I guess my, my way of thinking about it is, like, do you remember why they left the woods? Was it the bear attack? There And there were two different bear situations. Well, I think they were, they were always trying to make progress through the woods. And then there was one point where they're, they kind of settled in a little bit. But I think the goal was always to continue moving out. And then there was, no, there was the, the point where they saw the road. And um, Hank, that was the only point where Hank, like, saw that he was close to going back to that civilization where he didn't belong. And he was like, maybe I don't want to do this. And then the bear attacked, he passed out, and Manny supposedly carried him back. And that's Mm -hmm. how they got from the woods to that woman's backyard. Because, like, I'm almost like... Going about the you know the going back to the literal thought that Hank and Manny are one in the same, to me that's I uh, and this I just came to this realization now those 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 montages of Manny and and Sarah in right. quotation marks <laughs> falling in love is less to do with Manny and Sarah falling in love and not even necessarily Manny and Hank falling in love but almost Hank falling real- in love. Learning to love himself. Yes, yes, 100%. I think that is the 
that's that is something that we didn't hit on last recording, mm-hmm. and that is, I think, what all of our analysis was kind of leading to that we weren't quite there yet, and I think mm-hmm. that's absolutely right. Because, like, I remember the scene where where Manny had to like scare away the bear because Hank was up in the tree, and Manny fell from the tree, and he had like this big moment of like almost like his life flashing before his <laughs> eyes, but it's all the moments between him and Hank in their like idealized world of Manny dating Sarah. And then I I'll always go back to the scene of them on the bus. And then like the side of the bus blows out. Like it was hit, like it was hit by a car or something. And what still makes me believe that maybe Hank was in a traumatic car accident, which is part of the reason why he's out in the middle of the woods, losing his mind. Um, uh, and then, you know, Manny, essentially comes to life even more so to fight off that bear and does what he can to save to save hank and i don't really know quite where i'm getting with this other than <laughs> recapping it but like i feel like i'm, I'm working through something and i can't quite get yep. there i would uh, when you were talking about him having been in a car accident prior to the start of the film my my first thought is i don't think there's enough substantial evidence to support that and then i remember the reporter saying don't i know you yeah and so and then like i'm be. like i don't it totally could like there is something that i am missing mm-hmm. and it could like if you're picking up on on those clues then that could very well be what that missing yeah. piece is but whatever it is car car wreck or not there is something there is some piece that most likely happened before the events of the film that we mm-hmm. are missing. Yeah, because it's less it's less how Hank got on that island and more so why is Hank out of civilization? Why yeah. is he picturing the world this way? Because all evidence that we can see point to that Hank was a relatively uh, on-the-level guy. What was that pushing point that made him come out to these woods right though i think the only the only thing that we've really seen in flashback was him on that bus right mm-hmm. um so like who's so i guess to say we, yeah, what we his just, mental state what yeah is, we just have we just have him to go off of we yeah we have that 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 small sequence that is revisited of him sitting on a bus taking a picture of a girl and mm-hmm. looking her up on instagram mm-hmm yeah, but there's something know. there. There's something. There's more something there. there. Like this film is it's it, it it kind of invites you to want to have to go back to it. And now I can see why um, Stephen wanted want, wanted to hear us talk about this film because like this is our second time breaking down this film and yeah. analyzing it. We're still finding new. We haven't even rewatched it yet, and we're yeah. still finding new things. We're still to processing talk about. it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I truly, it, it's a truly special film. Yeah. And I think it's, I'm hoping it's one that does not have a short, like, it, it's not a movie that I feel like people are talking about now, but I'm hoping po- people find it again. So I would wrap up the discussion by saying that kind of my take on it, what my letterboxed review would be is come for the farting erection corpse, stay for the deep meaningful friendship and discovering how to love yourself yeah and it's also the film that daniel radcliffe said he's most proud of i that that checks out he should Mm -hmm. be he should be 
I actually, I was thinking back to that quote I was telling you earlier where the, the Daniels were talking about everything they don't like. And they're like, in the interview, they were like, it's like, we don't like, we don't like survival movies. We don't like Desert Island movies. We don't like uh, fart jokes. We don't like acapella soundtrack. We don't like Harry Potter. <laughs> we, we don't like Daniel Radcliffe at all. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought of that. <laughs> Did they, and they actually said that in the interview? Yeah, and Daniel Radcliffe sitting right next to him. <laughs> awesome. Perfect. Good. <laughs> Another Daniel. <laughs> yeah. The Daniels. That's three of them. And then you got Paul Dan-yo. Oh, yeah. yeah. One doesn't quite work. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's... it's, it's I, This movie's going to stick with me for a while. Yeah. And if, if it, I, I ultimately tell people, if, if this is a movie that you've been sleeping on because you didn't know what to make of it, or you just thought it's a farting corpse movie, <laughs> like, it is, but... Go into it and honestly, like, give this movie a shot because to, it was, yeah, I don't know. To go back to the Michael or Michelle Gondry reference that we made before, I think if you like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, then you will like Swiss Army Man. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree. All right. Well, um, I think you got a, a review for us, don't you? I do. Another movie that it's been a while since I have seen. So <laughs> we'll go. We're just gonna go fucking go with it. So today I have got uh, a review of "Death Has Blue Eyes" Ooh. by filmmaker Nico Masterakis. I also Which, have blue eyes. You do. Now, is your name Death? Uh, oh, it was in college for a short period of time, but that's unrelated. Cool. <laughs> so back of the box says, her looks could kill. Oh, no, sorry. Her looks could and did kill. Uh, Death Has Blue Eyes is a gripping paranormal action thriller with shades of giallo from the director of the cult classic video nasty Island of the Dead. When local gigolo Chess greets his vacationing friend Bob Kovinsky at Athens Airport, the pair embark on a string of scams and erotic dalliances that eventually lead them into contact with an elegant, wealthy woman, Geraldine Steinwitz, and her glamorous daughter, Christine. Geraldine blackmails the two cheeky bachelor boys into acting as bodyguards for Christine, whom it transpires has telepathic abilities and had her eye on them for some time. After fleeing from a series of assassination attempts, it soon becomes clear that Geraldine herself might not be quite this person might might not be quite whom she seems, as the two young men find themselves caught up in a political conspiracy of international dimensions. In his debut feature, Maverick filmmaker Nico Masterakis presents us with a generous maze. I mean I assume that's supposed to say maze, because I don't think M E Z E is a word. Maze. <laughs> Mies. Uh, An elaborate generous, maze. <laughs> a generous maze of nonstop car, bike, and helicopter chases, a bevy of beautiful girls with guns, sensational sex scenes, psychic thrills, and Cold War political intrigue set against the picturesque landscapes of 70s Greece, all presented for the very first time in a new HD master in both widescreen and small screen versions. Slight complication in the project. The two subjects involved are something we did not expect. 
Bob Kowalski, born in England, served in Vietnam, arrived in Athens the way you know. Chess Guilford, part-time lover, part-time racing driver, and karate expert. If they try to interfere, kill them. We need your help. Christine and I are involved in a very dangerous situation. She could control her natural abilities in mental telepathy. Sounds like science fiction to me. When two powerful minds, two mediums get together, there's no limit to their power. Don't tell me you're scared. Why? Why did you kill him? There's a bomb on the plane. Impossible! There is a bomb on the plane. And her name is Christy. Okay, so um, clearly I, I, I have not seen this film, so clearly I don't know how it manifests in the film itself. But based on the description on, of the back of the box, I love when films are have an element like somebody who happens to be psychic, but that's mm-hmm. not really what the movie's about, so it's just like, Oh, and then they also have a superpower that they're going to use, but we're not going to think much about it. So, honestly, this film feels like Nico Mastarakis. Like, I, I don't know much about his career. I've seen some of his movies, uh, and some of them I actually quite like because the man has a really interesting eye for, for filmmaking. He's very much the type of filmmaker where you watch his stuff, and while he does have increasingly bigger budgets as the film goes on, he seems like a guy who has a phenomenal eye uh, it just does not know what to do with all these ideas he has running through his head. Um, and honestly, it feels like, it feels like he, he definitely feels like a director that should not write his own stuff. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like kind of what you're saying is maybe he can't edit. Yeah. And, yeah. and not in the film editing sense, but yeah. just in the broad, like well, pulling stuff out. <laughs> Death has blue eyes is very much. When people think of, like, the stereotypical, like, grindhouse or drive-in type movie where it's just, you know, complete zaniness and craziness, that's what this film feels like. And it honestly feels like Nico Mastarakis didn't know if he'd ever get the chance to make another film. So he's like, well, I want to do an espionage thriller. I want to do car chases. I want some sci-fi. Not sci-fi, but, like, uh, like psychic abilities. I want all these things. And it's like, well, I don't know if I'm ever going to get a chance to make another film again, so let's just make something that nine-year-old me would love. And, you know, I can't hate on that. Right, yeah, I respect for that. Um, Yeah, because, like, when when, when movies like this exist, it's just, it's very much like, you know, even if the movie doesn't work for me, which this one did not work for me, when something like this exists, I'm like, I can't hate on you for having made this because I appreciate just the absolute audacity of it because that's the best way to put it this film just it's like when you just hear like the audacity like that's what this film feels like to me it just has the audacity to be what it is and i can't even hate on it for that because it's 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 something to behold 
ultimately my biggest gripe with the film was with a movie that has this much insanity going on, it should not be as boring as it was. <laughs> oh, Although no. I, I do have to say, like, um, I think I talked about this last time, too. As I was watching the film, there was, it was like the best character description of all time. Because after you get, you get to meet our two lead characters, um, Chess and, I think, Bob. And, you know, they, they um, we get to know them for a little bit. They meet Geraldine and Christine and all this stuff happens. But eventually, once they move into, like, the espionage plot, you know, in, like, spy movies, they'll have, like, a debriefing scene where they have, like, all the spies in, like, a darkened room and they're showing slides and, like, this is James Bond. He's Here's known for this, this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they have one of those scenes. And they, um, they have a, a moment where the character... Like who's debriefing all of his age and says, Chess Guilford, part-time lover, part-time racing driver, and karate expert. So I'm like, oh, fuck. There's going to be sex, there's going to be car chases, and there's going to be karate. I would say I was about an hour in, and there was there was definitely a bunch of sex scenes. There was three car chases, and this entire movie went by, not a single sense of karate. They broke the promise of the premise. Exactly. There was no like they 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 promised me something that I didn't get. Um, and but then going back to like the sex scenes, like this film, like it's like it honestly felt like once again like Nico Mastarakis is like I can get naked women in this film, sure. But like there's but like there's like a really interesting scene. So like Chess brings Bob back to his house, and there is like a woman, a topless woman wearing an apron, who's just serving him like food and snacks and shit. And then, you know, she's like, oh, she's a good lover. You should try her out. And Bob's like, okay, if you insist. But, like, the entire time it's being shot, they're on, like, a rotating round bed <laughs> that is constantly rotating. And, like, they're, one guy, they're both like this, but they're looking at each other. But the way the camera's framed, as it goes around, they, it keeps putting the face of one of the other guys in focus. So, <laughs> yeah. like, they're having this exposition scene of them talking to each other as the bed spins, but the camera never moves. And it's like, oh, that's actually a really creative way to show this. Right, right. And then they, he invites the girl in. They all have sex. We see, and, like, they're, like, it becomes a whole thing. But then Chess's parent wife comes back in, and she gets pissed off. He's like, what is happening here? And, like, Chess and Bob are naked together. And he's like, my friend Bob came to visit. <laughs> And like, but like, he's and he's like, and you're naked. He's like, I had to show him a good time. Like, they have like this completely unhomophobic scene with each other, where he's like referencing, it's like, yeah, I'm gonna of course make love to my friend Bob. So like, because for some reason he thought that would get him in less trouble than another woman. And then the woman shows up, and it becomes like you know stereotypical, like she's chasing them out with like a a, a mallet or whatever, okay. or like a cooking utensil. And I was like, this movie's just fucking insane. <laughs> and then like when they meet Geraldine and Christine, they have this whole moment amongst them where, um, the, like Bob is like. You get the idea that he's a scam artist where he's like, you know, like, oh, there's issues up in my room. And he's like, well, what room are you? And he's just making up stuff because he's trying to, like, con the hotel or whatever. And then, like, Geraldine's reading his mind. And it's, it becomes a whole fucking thing. <laughs> Honestly, like, I watched this movie and I, was, I could not keep the story straight because at one point... I can't imagine why. <laughs> yeah, like I said, and then it became like an espionage thriller. And then they brought in, like, psychic powers and all these car chases the movie is something to behold. It didn't work for me, but I feel like this movie will definitely have its fans. I just, when the thought of rewatching it comes up, I'm like, oh, I think I got better things to do. <laughs> like, um, it, if you're down for a bunch of shit thrown into a film, then you're going to have a good time and don't expect anything more than that. <laughs> yeah, like, it, it's a movie I feel like 
if I were to get it rewatched, I'd rewatch it with people because like that might actually be a bit more fun. Right. That's a whole other like sub. It's not even like a genre, but a, a bucket to throw films in mm-hmm. um, that suddenly makes otherwise less valuable films more valuable. Like, oh, okay, now I have a place to put that and a reason to watch it. Yeah, one hundred percent. And that's kind of how like this felt. Like this is. This is a party movie, I guess. Like, Put it in the bucket along with your The Hunter from the Future. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I love how um, ubiquitous that film has become in this podcast. It's become a, it's, a often quoted movie. The yardstick with which we measure everything. Yeah, like, I, I feel like we have, like, I don't know, like, I feel like we have a shameless scale where it's like... You know, I don't want to necessarily say your Hunter of the Future is like bottom of the barrel or anything, but it's like the scale of like your Hunter from the Future to Apocalypse Now or something. <laughs> right, yeah. Like, where does it fall on the scale? <laughs> and I would say Death Has Blue Eyes would probably fall near your Hunter for the Future. I actually think I had a lot more fun of yours, so like maybe Death Has Blue Eyes is part Becomes of a new scale. New, right. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't feel p- fair to, to, to change the scale with a movie that you haven't seen yet. <laughs> And don't, I, I'll be completely honest, I don't know if you will see this film. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it, as highly recommended as it came from you. Yeah. I don't know that this is going to make it into my viewing. Yeah. Not that so, I wouldn't watch it, it's just that like yeah, with only so many hours in a day to, to watch things, that wouldn't be the one that I put on. Yeah. Um, and then, so, the film, like, I want to talk a little bit about the transfer. Death Has Blue Eyes is... Is presented in both its one three three one aspect ratio and one eight five one aspect ratio. So like widescreen and full screen. Um, apparently the full the, it, the movie was shot full screen, but was punched into widescreen for a theatrical release. Okay. So technically the the full screen, you know, the square is box version the, is the version that was meant to be seen. Version. But I watched I watched the theatrical because I was like, well, I guess this is the way that it was commonly seen. I guess that is the version I want to watch. Sure. Um. So it was it's presented in both aspect ratios with its original mono audio. The film was restored by director Nico Masterakis and Angelus Aguirrealis at Stay Film in Athens, uh, or STE, STE Film in Athens. The original 35mm camera negative was scanned, graded, and restored in 2K resolution, and the soundtrack was remastered from an optical track. So the film was... Uh, restored by Nico Masterakis, and sometimes the issue with having a filmmaker restore his own stuff is instead of trying to be like, well, let me make it the way that, you know, let's take this existing film and color it and do whatever to make it look back to the way that it was intended to see back in theaters, sometimes you have like almost this James Cameron effect where they feel they need to fix mistakes. To keep tweeting, yeah. Because um, like you watch... Terminator 2, let's for example. And Terminator 2 was shot on film, but a lot of the versions that James Cameron has restored are sans a lot of film grain. So they use a digital noise reduction. And once you use digital noise reduction, you get rid of all de- a lot of detail in people's faces and things around them. So they go, oh, we need to get that back out again. So then they sharpen it. Yeah. And they're, they're, a lot of discs will have digital noise reduction. I'm not saying it's inherently always a bad thing, but... A lot of times you'll go too heavy-handed, and then you go too heavy-handed on the sharpening, and you can see all that. Right. Like, um, James Cameron one time said that he was, you know, and even though that movie was shot in the 90s, he, he wanted to make it look like it was shot today, which I think is the wrong choice. <laughs> I'm almost wondering if Nico Mastarakis did some of that in this film, because 
you know, the film was shot in 1970. What was this? 1970. Uh, I have it right up in front of me somewhere. <laughs> Uh, 1970 something. I don't remember the exact date. No, no. Um, 75. 1975. It was shot in 1975. Um, so relatively inexpensively. So it's using cheaper film stock. And the first thing I noticed I was watching the film was like, wow, this looks pretty good. Like, but then the more I watched, the more I realized it looked very video like. Okay. And I was like, that's strange. Well, let's wait to a night scene because a night scene is going to be where where it's going a movie shot on film is going to be the most revealing, especially a low budget movie. And I was like, huh, there's not much film grain in the darkness during these night scenes. And then I was like, oh, where's all the detail on people's faces? I was like, oh, they, it's called DNR. They DNR'd the shit out of this film. Yeah. It was it's pretty good. Like because the film does look good. But if you're looking for an accurate representation, you know, they, they removed some of that grain. There's not a whole lot of grain left in this film. Okay. And I think this film was also shot a little softer anyways. So, like, you don't get some of that fine detail, but the film still does look quite good. Um, but it does look a little video-like. like gotcha. it, You know, which is not what you're looking for when you are um, watching a film from this, this time period. You know, like... I can't speak for everyone, but for me, I want to see. I want to see the the film grain. I want to see the way that something was looked. So, you know, when you, sometimes when you have a filmmaker restore their own work and not like the cinematographer, because usually the cinematographer wants to keep it to look the way it was meant to. A, you know, the filmmaker sometimes tries to George Lucas it a little bit. And right. To, like, this is what I would have done if I could <laughs> have, you know. Um, so that's that's my complaint. I guess it's not – I shit on Mill Creek quite a bit even though I love them. Um, you know, Mill Creek is really heavy handed with their digital noise reduction and, and sharpening. This is not nearly to that level. I honestly probably wouldn't have noticed it if I didn't know what to look for. Okay. You know, I've been well, doing that's... these rev- I've been doing these reviews long enough that I know what to look for. Right. Uh, and I feel like it's something that people want to know. Um, but it ultimately it still is a good looking disc. Colors really pop in this film. Uh, audio is actually pretty good for being a mono soundtrack. But once again, you know, it's an old film. You know, there's going to be some inherent hissing and pops. And it's not a super wide soundstage because it's mono. But it, it, it it's very clear. It's very good. Um, and the special features, honestly, are good but annoyed the shit out of me. <laughs> That's I, right. I'm remembering this now. <laughs> yeah. There, there's, so there's an interview with Maria... Uh, Alaferi, who was, is the, you know, Death Has Blue Eyes title character. And then there's Nico Mastarakis in his own words, which is so strange because it's it says at the beginning that there's like a surprise birthday greeting for Nico Mastarakis that they attach to the front of this interview of him talking. So it's like a good five minutes of like these really CGI type clips being like, happy 80th birthday, Nico Mastarakis and people like wish him happy birthday, which is really cool. But the idea of it falls apart because if I'm a filmmaker and I did an interview for a disc one, if I even go back and rewatch the disc, cause I know <laughs> right. a lot of filmmakers don't, why would I go rewatch my own interview? Right. <laughs> like, and like, it would have been different if they would have made this and then recorded him. See, like, I don't know. It, it felt in- weird. And honestly, the, the little intro annoyed me so much that I never even got around to his interview. <laughs> I eventually do want to watch it because, like, the the guy the guy fascinates me. His career is very interesting. So I eventually yeah. do want to watch it. Um, but then, like, what I find really interesting, um, they actually have 
like a bunch of the the musical cues in this in in this movie remastered in stereo, so that way you can essentially listen to the soundtrack on the disc, which is kind of cool. Nice. Yeah. So. That is Death Has Blue Eyes. It's not a recommendation from me, but I do think there's going to be some people out there that are just going to have a lot of dumb fun with this movie. And, and has some value to it. Yes, it 100. Like, like There is some really creative, artistic shit in this film. It just it wasn't particularly entertaining for me. Yeah. So I actually think my review this time was better than it was last time. Nice. And yeah. we, we had extra points that we didn't on, on Swiss Army Man. The review's better this we, 100%. we should have thrown that one in the garbage anyway. So this yes. is better. We did it. I now, think fingers crossed that when I stopped recording. To, a little rocky getting it off the ground because we were like, what did I say last time? But then once we yep. got talking, we were good. Yeah. And fingers crossed that I don't lose the audio again. <laughs> right. So I guess um, before we find that out, I do have uh, two words for you. Well, before that goes. <laughs> actually, no, no. Let's do that and then I'll ask you my question because it's not important to the show. Okay. Um, Do the, start that over again. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I, I'm just going to roll into it. We're going to leave it in. I've got two words for you. <laughs> Watch movies. Watch movies. <laughs> the Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Easton, Maryland, and is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Byers. Today's episode was edited by Nick Richards. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals, with narration by Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed. The shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Byers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.